I'm in sunny Gothenburg in Sweden to try and understand how this city has become the world's most sustainable tourism destination and uh, have the northern Europe's most extensive tram network uh, with 12 lines. Edinburgh, eat your heart out. Uh, we talk about all the big issues back home, though. Um, Rishi Sunak and his press huddle that managed to exclude journalists from non-independent supporting papers in Scotland. Really, how does that look? Uh, we talk about the need for SNP members to get organised before the October conference to retrieve their party. Uh, we talk about the coronation and much else besides. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, or should I say, hey, Ivana, and welcome to the Leslie Reddit podcast, what you see. I, could, I couldn't resist. I mean, I have no idea. Uh, those of you who uh, who do know a bit of the Nordics will realise that it was my attempt to say, hello, friends, in Swedish, because guess where Leslie is? Hi, it's sunny Gothenburg, and just hold your Dundee stuff there, you know, your uh, football yeah. stuff immediately, because I, mm-hmm. I can feel it coming in waves. Oh, yes, but... it's a bubbling surface. <laughs> but yeah, I'd, I'd sort of, um, I've been wanting to come to Gothenburg for absolutely ages because there's a huge sort of Scottish connection with the city. And then noticed that it, it's got incredible sets of green credentials. Uh, it just, it's it had, it was a huge shipbuilding yeah, port, um, in fact, that was kind of part of the reason that a lot of Scots came over. Uh, it's that era has passed for them and they've transformed a lot of their, their ship, shipyards and dockland areas into the biggest research and development area kind of pretty much in Sweden. Uh, Volvo that's based here, this is Volvo town. Um, of course, Volvo is owned by the Chinese at the moment, but they, mm. they've been at it for 100 years. Uh, it was founded in 1927. So they're going to celebrate their centenary by transforming the company into an electric car only, I think. I'm about to go and hear more of it, but only company by that centenary, 1927. Mm -hmm. 400 years of Gothenburg, it's the world's most sustainable tourism destination. I mean, you know, all of these things are just, we're just kind of piquing my interest. And of course, it has a peninsula of tiny islands with huts on it, uh, yes. <laughs> right offshore where I was <laughs> yesterday. And I thought, come on, you know, it, it, I, I've managed to finish the book, Thrive. It's in now pretty much at the publishers. Um, so I thought just a few days somewhere else for the sun, because it's mm. actually a beautiful sunny day. And for those of us on the east coast of Scotland, it's not been just quite so good. So, um, so, yeah, that's what I'm doing over here. And just to, because there might be a wee rumble that comes past the windows, I'm in a hotel called Hotel Eggers that, again, founded 1859. Beautiful traditional old hotel. And you think, how can this be sustainable? But this, the, the, the efforts they've gone to to try to, they have their own electricity supplied by a set of wind turbines on the coast. Um, they source all their food locally. They, you know, they, they have small portions and that get people to ask for more to avoid food waste. They tend to have fish and vegetable type dishes for every meal and have far less meat. It's, you know, it's all we things. But then 70 percent of their customers are Swedes and Swedes are just like massively ahead of this. I mean, you know, so so it's kind of interesting to see all the little things that get put together and a fantastic tram network. Now, this is eat your heart out time because this is actually the largest tram network, Gothenburg, in northern Europe. Wow. You know, it's got uh, 
12 lines. So it kind of knocks, you know, it kind of mm-hmm. knocks Edinburgh into a wee bit of a cocked hat. But they started early doors. 1879 was their first tram. <clears throat> they've now got 100 miles worth of trams. You can go pretty much everywhere on the trams. They've got bus networks. They've got huge amounts of cyclists. And I've, I've actually never seen so many people running for transport. And I was kind of wondering why that was when there's blooming so much of it. But I think it is. It's like a fine art that people jump off buses. They've got seconds to spare till they get onto a tram. They've got another, you know, one minute till they get a train. And because everything kind of works, it it is all just seamless. So people mm-hmm. aren't hanging about for five or ten minutes. They don't expect to hang about. They expect to just loup from thing to thing like kind of human transport chimpanzees. And it's actually great fun doing it. I'm going later to see these guys at this dockyard walking or taking a tram to a a ferry port point on the Mm -hmm. uh, River Gotha, which is the same as the Clyde, you know, big estuary. Uh, And a little wee ferry runs regularly, will kind of take me over to the shipyard on the other side. And you think, oh, God, come on, Scotland. (laughs) This is all stuff we could be doing. But anyway, more of that, Mm. doubtless another time. Yeah, but they had a rotten football pitch in 1987. That's all I've got to say to you. That's fine. (laughs) That's it. I got it out of the way. Picked up since then. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, So, yes, and I've got to give you issue congratulations, Leslie, because uh, your latest article in the National managed to, in my words, not yours, unite the happy clappers and the naysayers in the SNP, and that both sets of them disliked everything you had to say about. about, I cannot put it because it, the 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 subheaders have put in the the headline. Just get over it. Uh, I would say enough already. No, it already. was it was it was move on or something some move phrase on, like that. Something like that, yeah. Which wasn't really what I was trying to say at mm-hmm. all. But you know that them's the breaks. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a funny kind of thing. I mean, one of the the key points I picked up on was the fact that there were there are objections from and, and seriously from people in the SNP to you describing the the SNP as inhabiting the same morally compromised universe as uh, many of its rivals, and that was a really hard one for many of the people to to swallow when I looked at the comments. Well, you've got an advantage of me slightly in that because I've been travelling and kind of preparing right. to come here, I haven't <laughs> delved into the deeper, you know, I yeah. did get to a stage where I just thought, you know something, I just feel like giving yeah. up sometimes. But, I mean, you know, I, I think the point is that that uh, if you just let's look at what's still going on in Britain and yeah. actually an attachment and an obsession with the every single bit of the inner workings of what's happening now within the SNP is kind of doing no good. We we actually need that party to uh, retrieve itself rather than to knock itself to pieces. And I quite appreciate a lot of people in other parties will think, you know, that's beyond redemption now. And of course, a lot of people in the SNP will get extremely annoyed by even using language like that. Mm-hmm. I would humbly suggest you do look at some of the comments from your own previous members, um, some of whom might still be members, um, about things that have happened over the last, you know, three to four years and attempts to check what was happening within the party in that period in 2020, 2021, when there are fo- a reforming slate was elected, they got absolutely nowhere. Um, I may be a bit bit weird picking up stuff that's coming out, but um, you can you can definitely see Joan McAlpine had a piece in the absolutely. Sunday Post yes. with just stuff that she'd kind of kept to herself. And this is what happens. A lot of us who've had 
bad dealings, essentially, with Peter Merle over the years. I've probably kept a lot of it quiet because, you know, it felt like what you're just blowing your own problems and it doesn't help the SNP to keep uh, niggling on about what could be perceived to be just ego problems. But they're not. When you look at it over the piece and over the number of people now coming clean about stuff, there's just been a lot of a lot of problems bottled up by having this extremely tight knit far too small, personally connected, mutually supporting against all outside opinion, uncheckable, uncorrectable (laughs) leadership. And I mean, if you can't hear that now for crying in a bucket, you know, the, the possibility of moving on only happens and that wasn't really what the article was was advocating, moving on as if there's nothing to see here. Yeah. But you know, the, the possibility of any kind of progress only happens when you accept that there have been problems. Now, of course, we don't know the extent of the problems because we're still sitting with an unresolved police inquiry. But look at what's what's in front of you already from people who gave decades of their life to the party. And you'll you'll see that, you know, there's a bit of a common thread there. And it, it's a set of difficulties that you, Viz, SNP members, need to get off your mark and deal with because the chance for you to deal with this properly is the October conference. Yeah. Now, that will be up on on you like tomorrow. You're thinking, OK, this is just the start of May. Plenty of time we can get organised, see what Humza says, see what happens with the police. For, listen, get organised <laughs> because, you know, the summer holidays will be here before you can think about it. There's a big layoff. Branches won't meet. People won't make decisions. You need to strategize about how to get a lot of the stuff that limited, for example, the movements. I think this is only my opinion. I'm not a party member. But, you know, the movements of MPs back to Hollywood, potentially, really, was that one that was supported across the party? There's quite a lot of stuff in there that really needs a good shakeout. You need good candidates, internal candidates for every position now. And that's essentially new vigorous people um with you know with with a with a transparency with a good track record with something to say with with a kind of appetite and a courage actually to take on this situation you will not find them one day before a close of motions you know whenever that mm-hmm. deadline is so actually people really need to get busy now and that was my point if people actually read the blinken article yeah um was the the, the kind of current it's not a, exactly a dwam but it is it's deeply disturbing and i'm not even a party member and feel it all the time actually this feeling that you're not quite sure if what you stood on was solid ground or not and it's very destabilizing but you know you guys that are in this party it's up to you to put this back on the tracks. And I was just humbly suggesting that everybody kind of could just usefully do with essentially getting over themselves. And I don't yeah. mean that in a disparaging way, no. because it is a big self of attachment to a belief in people, a belief in that everything was doing all right. You know, a belief that you were putting the greater good first, uh, a belief that it was good to wish for Indy. There's lots of deep-seated beliefs sitting here that you've got to get over in yourself. And nonetheless, that's the size of it. For independence, that is the size of it. So that's what I was trying to say. Whether I got there or not, don't think the headline helped, but, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, if every, you know, if everyone's picking it to pieces, then fine. You know, that seems to be par for the course these days. 
dispiriting though it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think your point, enough grieving and enough gloating was was was, was clearly stated. And, you know, I did WB Yeats and Franz Kafka last week in terms of my quotes, but there was a, a thing I, I, I recall from years ago uh, I saw in the, 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 the changing room of the Dallas Cowboys American football team, which, and I used it constantly um, uh, w- with students, was that which we tolerate, we encourage. And I know why people were tolerating, and that goes right across not just the SNP membership, but but those who were support independence. I know what we tolerated because of the concept of the greater good. One of the key things I picked up on as well from that, and it, it, it does go to a broader point in, in terms of the necessity of the SNP uh, getting its act together and the Yes movement getting its act together, and to point out that the radical differences between the so-called progressive left and in England is represented under the Labour Party with Keir Starmer and the stance that the SNP and others up here take, for example, on immigration, because I thought Stephen Flynn was absolutely excellent at Prime Minister's questions when he raised that whole point about what is the safe route from someone in a young person in Sudan to get into this country, a child in Sudan to escape and answer came there none from Rishi Sunak. And you pointed that out clearly in your article. But again, that's the sort of thing that we've got to grasp onto, that there is a significant difference. And some like Stephen Flynn, from my perspective, should be back up in Hollywood. Yes. And I mean, that's that's the point I was trying to make, that actually you've got a choice as to where your attention goes. I know that, you know, we're in an era now of clickbait, social media and everything. And I, I know it. You know, before you know what's happened, you spent 10 minutes meandering off on some yeah. random thing about blooming cats. And before you know what's happened, you're off in another universe and you can't remember what your name is, what day it is, what you started off looking for. I mean, God, it happens over and over and over again. And yet you have a choice. You know, so there is actually stuff going on that really needs all political parties. And, you know, the SNP is the biggest set of our elected representatives. It is the third largest party in Britain. It needs these guys focusing again on the travesty of everything that happens on a daily basis, shrugged off as if it didn't even happen. Liz Truss and her, what is it, 12 or 20 or whatever it is, thousand pound Mm. bill from Chevening where she waltzed off with, you know, the blooming bathroom robes and <laughs> slippers. I mean, you know, there must have been some humdingers and slippers to clock up 12,000 or whatever it is. And yet that's put forward, as you see, we just laughed about that. Mm-hmm. And it is an extraordinary thing that whatever the Tories do in terms of trashing the economy, and there's a very amusing piece written by a guy in the Times who was kind of saying that he doesn't think it's all that funny because the complete hips that Liz Truss made of the budget has cost him on his mortgage £66,000 over its lifetime. So he was suggesting that since that's rather the same as she gets for making a speech, uh, bizarrely, Mm -hmm. um, she could come and make a speech in his house and instead of being paid £65,000, she could give him that and then they would call it quits. And, I mean, again, there's a sort of aspect of, you know, what are they like even within that? But, you know, behind the surface, there's just some absolute fury there at the arrogance of this woman, um, which actually slightly fits onto a, a, another piece that I wrote for, for the Herald yes. about just general arrogance of people within yep. actually English public life. I mean, Richard Sharp, the mm-hmm. you know now standing down chairman of the BBC's resignation statement, has got to be one of the most unrepentant, pompous homilies uh, you know, about him thinking it was now was the time was right to avoid damage to the BBC. 
you're having an actual giraffe laddie. I mean, if you were worried about the reputational damage to the beeb, you wouldn't have hung them out to dry for months like this. So that actually a, a fairly beleaguered corporation in Scotland and with minorities across the rest of Britain has been so completely tarred by the association with the with uh, the Tories, an obvious, transparent and, and un, incontrovertible one that you've placed all their reporters in that sort of jeopardy, if you like, of having their bona fides continually questioned. Yeah. Um, but no, no, you know, now that the kind of you, you've been somewhat banged to rights by some other lord, somebody that sits in judgment upon you, then you've decided now in your pompous way that you will do the right thing and put the, the BBC before yourself. I mean, honest to God, does, does nobody within that room even not just want to explode with laughter? And it struck me that was very much part of also <laughs> the um, the Rishi Sunak banned bits of the Scottish press. Yeah. Affair. Uh, when when he had his, there was a Glasgow conference, Rishi comes up the road, uh, there's there's a pretty normal press huddle after it. Everybody's usually in, but Rishi's minders, um, and these might be related to the people who decided his motorcade through <laughs> London needed hundreds. I don't know if every, anyone saw this on oh, God, social yeah. media. It was utterly hilarious um, with these running cops, I mean, running like North Korea or something preceding him. And of course, Everyone in the streets of London is going, what the hell? There's hundreds of them panting a bit as they kind of run past in their full high-vis gear and everything. And this was essentially just to clear the streets so this poxy car with Rishi Sunak can glide past, you know, on his way for a curry or something. And people were just, you know, the guy who was taking the film was just screaming at him, you're not elected, you know, nobody elected you. Not with a Scottish accent, I hasten to add. Um, you know so it was kind of utterly surreal and here we are a couple of weeks later uh if you know if if uh if he if he basically is too special to uh have a car that can be allowed to be even brushing the airspace of you know londoners can you imagine how scary it is to be in the same room with a bunch of scottish hacks Mm-hmm. And this seems to be the size of it, because the people that were what happened was his minders tried to stop essentially by the looks of it. The Herald, the Scotsman, the Record, the I newspaper, the National. Um, I think, you know, those the, basically the Scottish based titles from um, from being part of this press pack in an unprecedented way. Uh, you have to think, um, well, now you know what it's like to for the National yes. to be on the naughty step all the time, you know, because they're. They were bounced out of a of a mm. kind of press the first time by Theresa May in 2018 when she had a Bridge of Weir uh, event to try and explain her Brexit deal. And the, 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 the National were excluded and printed a paper with a completely blank front page saying, here's where we would have put news had we been allowed in. Mm-hmm. So up till now, the naughty step's been reserved for, for explicitly national, you know, independent supporting paper in Scotland. Um, whereas now it looks, I mean, the only conclusion I think you can come to is that from the perspective of someone like Rishi Sunak, um, all Scots look potentially like yesers. Yes. They just all look like trouble. And if it's not that they're going to start whamming away about questions about independence, it's just that they're not worshipful. They're not worshipful yeah. enough. And, yeah. you know, dear knows that the, 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 the English press in London have also had their walkouts over attempted attempts at sort of managing their numbers. Um, Boris Johnson, I think, tried one and got Laura Kunzberg et al. walking out on behalf of, of fellow journalists who'd been excluded there. 
But, you know, the, the Scottish press have got a reputation, as indeed do Scottish audiences and Scottish everybody's, for basically calling a spade a blinking spade. And you do wonder if this is just now a thing where, you know, little precious petals like Rishi Sunak, with pretty much nothing to win in Scotland, just doesn't want to have that explosion because the only way is down, especially yeah. a week before local elections in England. Yes, well, I find it interesting that you did refer to Andy McKeever's statement is that he's uh, throwing the Scottish Tories under the bus. You know, mm. I mean, by I mean, and Douglas Ross has issued an apology and he's going to wait for this, have words with number 10. Well, let's hope his memory is a bit better than it was about his numbers when, he, when, he, when he's been asked about the, the numbers he couldn't remember from 2020 when the previous election. Let's hope he remembers this issue when he next time he meets Rishi Sunak and does not down an adoration falling, low the sacred Rishi we hail. Mm. Uh, you know, which is all sort of not really going to happen. Uh, but no. it just—it was just a little—it was a little incident. But the other thing was that um, the, you know, the the, the, t the TV cameras were so incensed, obviously, either by what was happening to their colleagues or themselves. It's a bit unclear that they just let the cameras run. So basically, the Stramash was filmed and formed part of reports. Most journalists also made it part of their reports, but particularly I'd noticed Tom Gordon from the Herald, who was one of the excluded, which will come, I think, as a bit of, you know, an yes. unusual thing for him. <laughs> um, I, and, and yeah, they went on to actually report what Rishi Sunak did say. And it's like, you know, this is just robust fairness, matey, you know, because these guys, if they were really the deeply prejudiced, warped kind of whatever it is you imagine in your head kind of journalists, uh, they they wouldn't have printed a, a word that you said, or it would have been barbed. Um, you know, as it was, they did a pretty straight up report. Although, what did he say? You know, there's the mm. next thing, and all he did was just basically say there'll be name mere devolution for you, mates, and we're not giving you an ind another independence referendum, which is kind of actually, in a sense, you know, no news there, except that ought to be news. Yeah. There is no there's no further powers coming for Hollywood from the conservatives. That's it. So any, you know, let's not have any more flummery from anybody about, you know, the potential of some enlightened kind of rollout of this, that or the next thing. It, you know, Lord Frost may be have been put into a kind of, you know, on, a, on another naughty step all of his own <laughs> by some of the Tories saying he doesn't speak for any of us about wanting to unevolved devolution but clearly you know letting it sit in its current awkward in-between status could be argued to be helping to do that very thing since also you know this, the the uh, internal market act is doing mm -hmm. its job quite nicely of undermining quite a lot of legislation and causing all sorts of other stushies internally the bottle deposit scheme for example uh you know that may have its pr problems but the bigger one was not being able to be certain that you'd get a, a buy from the British government to let it function within the Internal Market yeah. Act that just wants everybody to do the same thing forever. So you could have made that into a, a big thing. You know, any other country would say, OK, if this is kind of, you, you know, you've had your jotters, you've had your lunch rather, um, you know, well, let's look at it. How is devolution working? But no, no. It is simpler to just keep going on the failings of, you know, the things that don't work at the moment amidst, I mean, and, and they're, they're shocking. Uh, the, the Ferris thing is yeah. Yeah, shocking. 
But still, there's there's problems in most administrations. And at the moment, you know, any unionist paper senses blood. Yeah. Well, always got to remember, as, as Rishi reminded us, that we do have the most powerful devolved, wait for it, assembly in the world. Oh, did he say that? <laughs> oh, yes. And he used the word assembly. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just that, I mean, but it's that whole thing that what Sunak, I mean, to, to refer to it, what Sunak seems to be doing, and it's, a, it's I don't know if it's deliberate or it's just the way the man is. What he manages to do is present a pattern of respectability, you know, uh, despite the, the rather dodgy trousers and the suits he wears, he's better dressed. He's, he can be more articulate, except he's talking about football. And he, he he and Hunt present this pattern of respectability. Yet underneath, they're, they're pursuing exactly the same despicable policies and reactionary policies in terms of things like asylum seeking and immigration. They, they're, they're going ahead with the voter ID, which will be significant mm. it would appear in the local elections next week and they're getting away with absolute political murder in these terms uh whilst presenting you know we're, we're the sensible ones in comparison to the the two ages that preceded us yes isn't it it's just you know it's, it's kind of that sort of the, the the comparison is all that basically elevates the performance yeah. but but just coming back to your point about stephen flynn i mean i thought that PMQs where he basically stood up and very directly and without, you know, without any flummery, just cut straight to the chase. What will happen to a child fleeing Sudan? Yeah. Full stop, sit down. Was was a, was such a contrast with Keir Starmer. And I mean, mm -hmm. this is and this is a point actually raised in another excellent article in by George Caravan that you Labour is cannot expect a slam dunk essentially victory at the local elections. Partly because Keir Starmer is still not set in the heather light with people. And, it, you know, whatever the policies are, and we'll come on to some of the backtracking on that in a second. Yeah. Um, there's still uh, we're now in living in such a presidential age uh, within British and Scottish politics that you actually need to feel something about the the hodder of the position before you're you know willing to go the extra mile. And uh, it, it would it would seem very strongly as if he is a guy who relies on his notes when he's standing at the dispatch box. Again, unlike Stephen Flynn, he has to read everything off. And um, <clears throat> he has these if, if this might be a lawyerly habit. But, you know, Nicola Sturgeon was a lawyer. I can't remember her pretty much using notes ever in occasions like this. Um, he, he, he stands. He, he has scripted jokes. He has scripted pauses. He. You know, he's constantly relying on that, you know, on that predetermined mm -hmm. ideas of what will happen and not, uh, and he's occasionally he's spontaneous and he's actually pretty good. Yes. But he doesn't trust himself. And this is the thing that I think over time you sort of see because there's something very, uh, you know, the contrast with a guy who can just literally stand up without the flummery, without the long you know, parentheses in his sentences without all of that kind of distracting guff and just says, will child, a child fleeing Sudan be able to reach the UK in a safe route? Sits down. Yeah. That, and then his second, his follow up was exactly as punchy, sat down. And in a funny kind of way, that is very Scottish. You know, that's a tremendous, you feel like you're it's not just this sentiment of, of what's being conveyed that you feel some identity with. It's the clear eyedness of it all, you know, and the and the, the, the refusal to play 
the the sort of loquacious parliamentary game that you know many other MPs I think do fall into. It's quite pleasing to hear somebody who just goes in, kicks a ball in, you know, the yeah. net twice and sits down. So um, so all of that was true, and of course the issue couldn't have been a bigger one. Here here we are again with a situation in Sudan where you know the the evacuation of of British nationals seems to have been lumpy mm. to put it sort of yeah. mildly um and we and we haven't got safe routes for anybody trying to reach britain um as a result of what's happened there and it, it is it, it ought to be just completely shocking uh, so it was very good that he raised it he raised it in very clear terms and sat down and that's that's what we that's what we expect of our parliamentarians and that's what we need to get back behind and focus on is the performance and the issues and the stuff that's happening, courtesy of the British government, because, you know, it is not just one government that should be under scrutiny, and especially not by yesers. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other thing was as well, I mean, I don't know, uh, I mean, I was, the, the absolutely appalling situation in Sudan, and then the, the the one thing that I found out that really sickened me to my stomach was that was knowing that people were having to get their own way to the, the to the airfields to actually be evacuated, and then NHS doctors, NHS doctors who were not British nationals but were resident here, had been working throughout COVID, were turned away from getting on the planes because they were not holders of British passports. And I thought to myself, that that situation there, I cannot place myself either in the position of the person who is being turned away, who had dedicated their life and put their life on the line for us during the COVID, uh, the worst days of the COVID epidemic. And then secondly, being the people who were there who had to turn around and say, I'm just obeying orders, you cannot get on. Now that was rescinded, but it just goes to show the mindset that exists within within the UK government and absolutely, again, goes goes back to the way that things just seem to be haphazardly organised. We can't do things correctly either way. And it was just, it was an absolute shock to me. But hats off to Stephen Flynn, short, sharp. And that's been noticed down south. I know, I know that, for example, James O'Brien, before Prime Minister's questions, will always turn around and say, well, Stammer will go this way. But I'll tell you, Stephen Flynn will ask the question. Mm -hmm. And he, he nails it every time, Flynn. Yeah. And I must admit, I mean, a lot of time for him, Blackford, but I do find the way that Flynn expresses himself and puts the points over superior to Ian because it's just short, sharp, punchy and to the point. And unlike Keir Starmer, he doesn't have to keep referring to the fact that his dad was a toolmaker to, to come up with his working class credentials, does he? Yeah, but coming back again, we can keep coming back on ourselves, but back again to the ridiculous situation facing those NHS doctors, um, the, the the reason that that uh, you know that that was trotted out by the British government, the Foreign Office, was that they were evacuating diplomats first. Mm. And you think, hmm, is that really going to work with people who are facing a strike in England with NHS workers? You know, I mean, real total. Now we're not exaggerating at all. Utter, you know, operations cancelled. Yeah. People supporting the nurses, but the nurses are on strike. Perhaps a 5% pay deal being issued today. Meltdown, right, in the NHS. And you think that they're going to think that it was OK to get diplomatic staff out first and that there's no other explanation needed, that you would sort of, everybody would automatically see their view of it, which is diplomats are our guys. We employ them. 
And I think there was a threat to, to, to one of them. Perhaps there was an attack very close. So fair enough. I'm not saying they should be hung out to dry and shouldn't be a priority. But the idea that just saying, you know, in, in response to to an outpouring of anger about the NHS uh, folk being left stranded there, that it was enough to say, but obviously we were getting diplomats out. See, that's just not enough. It's like you're in your world and we're in our world and those just don't mesh. And actually, there's a lot of that around um, Lambeth Palace's idea that we're all going to have this, whatever it is, yes. cry of, I, I'm not sitting with the yeah. words in front of me, but the oath of whatever it is, you know, the cry yeah. of, oh, or whatever it is we're supposed to do at the moment of the coronation <laughs> has been so sweetly and roundly just lambasted. And I, I wonder where that's going to leave Scotland by the end of watching this, because, OK, 72 percent of people say they don't care either way. I think that uh, effect, effectively that might actually reduce as people decide they do care that 100 million quids spent on a coronation that's supposed to be an yeah. austerity coronation. Uh, nah, not really. Um, and then, of course, there was the, the kind of old firm match with the singing by the Celtic oh, yes. end. <laughs> <laughs> which yes. probably isn't repeatable on this, but, uh, you know, I mean, totally the, the, the sentiment there and the wholeheartedness of the entire stand singing it, you know, mm -hmm. I think it was stick your coronation up your arse. Up your, I mean, it was indeed. Yeah, uh, it, that's where people are with it. And the more they try to retrieve themselves, now we can see that, you know, the, the kind of slightly washed down something or other that King Charles will sit on that was only used twice before by somebody else and, uh, you know, all these attempts to sort of say, oh, but really, it's it's actually all quite good. It's just digging the hole deeper, you know. Um, and yeah. I, I hope that this will firstly encourage a whole lot of people to go to the All Under One Banner March on Saturday, which is a march for independence as much as it's a statement about um, being anti-monarchy and wanting a modern republic for Scotland. Um you know, absolutely. Let's let's turn out to that um, because that's a very timely one, given that it is actually on Coronation Day and and have a bit of a blinking debate about this. Really, I know it's we're all having a bit of a knee jerk thing, given the ludicrousness, really, of, you know, the King Charles rollout. Um, but what, what are we going to do with a new Scotland? We, we do need to decide and discuss a bit about how we get new arrangements in, in a larger sense with a whole written constitution and so on. And whatever happened to Mike Russell's draft constitution mm. that was discussed and doesn't seem to have totally come out the other end. I mean, this is what I mean. We need to get back on the horse here. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to get just sticking with the, the coronation for a moment. I, I noted the significant difference between the English Premier League stance on the what uh, football clubs should do on May the 6th. They're asking the clubs to play God Save the King before matches this weekend, plus put up uh, the official portraits of Charles and Camilla. Uh, while it's being uh, while it's being sung, and I mean, and, and Jurgen Klopp was asked for his opinion. Right, he says, as a German, I'm sticking very very clearly away from this. I thought maybe as a German, given the background of the Sachs Cobras, he could have made a statement. But however, he didn't. SPFL up here, as they did um, with the death of, uh, of Queen Elizabeth, what they actually said there it was up to the clubs to decide what they wanted to do to. To, to mark the moment, other than Rangers, everyone else had a moment's silence and they played God Save God save the King. And they've left it up to the Scottish clubs to decide. I do know just from uh, just from the fact that May the 6th is the, 
Dundee United away at St Johnson. I've been following the Dundee United, not the official club, but Dundee United supporters on Twitter saying if they dare play at, at uh, McDermott Park, there's going to be scenes. I cannot cannot see it going down terribly well. Um, but I did notice that 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 whole thing there, just to just to, to, to lead on from that. I don't know if you saw the the Scottish launch of. Uh, Together UK Foundation, uh, Arlene Foster's Let's Get All Together to to Defend the UK. And uh, they thought it was a smart idea uh, to to have the launch at Ibrox in the Ibrox Trophy Room. And uh, someone once uh, someone said about it is there wasn't so much about uh, UK better together, but let's see if we can actually appeal to the DUP with the elections that may or may not be coming up in Northern Ireland. yeah, she also turned around and said that uh, she was very impressed with uh, the neo-fascist Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney. She was a, an impressive politician and the first female Prime Minister of Italy. Yeah, but- I mean, there is there is a massive Rangers uh, social club actually still in Belfast. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, none of the none of the, the Northern Irish teams have have any of the kind of followership, if you like, of the old no. firm still. So no, yes, absolutely. That's easily yeah. a kind of shout back home. Just to, uh, just the one still thinking about the monarchy. Um, I, I, having been here or hereabouts for a wee while, um, I wonder where Hamza Yusuf is with all of this because I see that um, yeah. Alex Sam has been, you know, I think calling on him to basically not bend the knee or whatever it is, or not take the oath or not mutter yeah. whatever, whatever he's supposed to do. But it does place him in a pretty tricky position, really, because you know he's. He is he is a Republican, as far as I understand, and he you know he is going to get stuck in there representing a country, okay, uh, but you know it's almost like since he accepted that invitation, the stakes have sort of risen somewhat in terms of uh, the, the kind of mm. you know just the kind of clagginess actually of the whole thing really, and the way that Scots I mean the, the sort of Scots he rep- actually represents. You know, left to centre, so yeah, left to centre and yesers. But I mean, that's beyond yesers now. This is really, you know, to yeah. get something like seventy-two percent of people don't give a toss and fifty percent won't watch it. That's, you know, that's a pretty solid majority of Scots who are not happy with this, and yet he's got to stand in the middle of it, <clears throat> and no doubt will be picked out, you know, with whatever bowing and scraping is kind of required of somebody in a situation like this. So. Uh, and of course, if he said he wasn't going, that would just be added to the whole long list of yeah. <laughs> calumnies against, you know, just everything um, that he's facing at the moment. So he's definitely stuck between a rock and a hard place. But at some yeah. point, you know, there's got to be some some clarity and some style and some substance to where he's going with stuff. Um I guess really, you know, it would be hard to get your head around having to deal with all of that quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. Having just been ensconced and then suddenly discovering that you have to go or not go to a coronation, uh, but you know it's going to be a difficult one for him for sure. Yeah, but I mean it, uh, it should be noted that Michelle O'Neill has been of Sinn Fein has been praised for her attendance, saying mm-hmm. that she she as the uh, the about to be first minister in in Northern Ireland if it yeah if and when the DUP actually decide they're going to get back to government and not just. Uh, 
stay on the stay on the sidelines, uh, uh, hoping that they're going to uh, uh, this will help them uh, stay as the, the majority loyalist unionist party in Northern Ireland. But she's going because she says she's going to bring the communities together, and she represents all communities within Northern Ireland. So again, but it is a different nuanced position. I, I get it entirely where you do have that that significant divide in Northern Ireland, and I think she's made a smart move doing that. Yeah. And with the you know that historic handshake basically between was it Queen Elizabeth and Martin McGuinness? Yeah, absolutely. Which you know you could you can you can take all your attitudes towards royalty and the monarchy and its destructive impact, and yet given the background of of uh, what had happened on both sides of that handshake, uh, it was quite an extraordinary thing, um, which which helped cement the peace process, no doubt. So I guess within that context, it's it's a it's a measure of whether Michelle O'Neill is kind of following in where Martin Martin McGuinness yeah. was able to lead. So for them, there's that backdrop to it as well. But uh, yes, and see, maybe that's absolutely right that there's just an undue amount of pressure on on a Scot because we are another country. I mean, we we really kind of are, you know, and just mm-hmm. the attitudes that. The social and whatever you want, political attitudes that the average Scot will have just do not hang very easily with what comes out of London. And we've had to bite this back and develop, you know, a sort of almost kind of a dual personality to be able to do two things at once, which is face the reality of our own folk with our own tongue and attitudes and make sense that way to get elected um, and then face the other way, which is you know, t- towards the the, the 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 archaic ideas of Britishness, which have to be respected in order to kind of stay in touch with the other half of the population. And I don't know about everybody else, but, you know, there's days, especially when you're not in Scotland, where it just all seems like an enormous strain. You know, mm-hmm. I think we've all been living with huge amounts of strain for a very long time. Um, but still, strain, yeah. you know, comes with being alive, no doubt. Yeah, and it's the other thing about it, Liz, that it's all the flummery that goes with it. That's why I, I cannot get myself exercised about the, the stone of destiny, even though it played a significant part and it's coming back to Scotland, you know, when it was when it was brought back in, in the 1950s and its symbolic value there. I'm shrugging my shoulders when it's going down there. It's right up there with the two bits of the true cross and uh, being anointed with uh, holy oil from elsewhere. And uh, water is it from from? The, the Red Sea or something like that, and the Sword of Destiny. My the, God, you have you got know, into this path. I mean, it's just it's. <laughs> it's, it's like a reworking of Monty Python and the Holy. It is. It seriously is. I mean, but it does point out to many people. I would have thought the absolute absurdity of a hereditary monarchy and the, the whole nature of the beast in terms of uh, in terms of its again just as a utter absurdity in a modern theoretically democratic society where I want to be a citizen not a subject yeah and actually you know as per a previous kind of podcast it could be different but see the thing is because you know okay sitting over over here in Europe there are many monarchies as discussed before who don't have coronations whose monarchs just turn up in parliament and take an oath in front of elected representatives because that's the important bit but yeah. the only thing that matters about about the British monarchy is its archaicness, is all of this, you know, ancient, utterly ancient kind of incomprehensible tradition, because that's what sort of bestows this mysticism upon it that keeps the whole sorry shebang of Britain on the road. 
I mean, if anybody looked in the cold light of day, geez, even, you know, I met a British and English couple yesterday going off to the island. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we were talking about just those things of when you come from airport one in Britain, anywhere to, you know, which is full of barked out announcements with nervous, shrill, stressed people, um, you know, trying to get you to stand like cattle in a queue to do <laughs> something, you know, whatever. And you're paying for everything. There's no frills. There's no nothing. Everybody's sort of, you know, trying their best to be cheery. But, you know, it's all very stressful. And you come out the other end where it's like having got back 20 years to where, you know, people have a bit of time. The airports don't look like if you bind, you know, hard on one wall, you go flying right through to the other side of something. <laughs> They're solid. Even this very solidity and calmness of these places is like a, a kind of sanctuary, basically, from what we've become. And what we have become is a gigantic race to the bottom where we end up paying through the nose for lack of trust. Let me just give you an example. I have got a three day travel card here that got me on trams, the boats out to the wee islands, the boats today, you know, all over the place. Basically, nobody has checked it yet. Right. And nobody has checked it because these countries operate with the highest levels of trust in the world. Now, there's a point because actually you're saving money all around these systems by not having the endless checks, the checks on the checks in case your colleagues were sort of half asleep yeah. because they've just done a 24 hour shift, the suspicion. Um, and then, of course, it almost challenges you. You know, if you're treated like that, you begin to think, well, you know, we're just scoring one against the man. If you manage to kind of whip past something yeah. without paying, that's and, and people just don't do that here. Not hugely. Um well, it's not that I've noticed and not that anyone comments on it. So the thing is, you know, the, the trust that gets built into systems is even free ferries across to one of the other northern sets of the archipelago free. And this is part of their bid to have sustainability because that also enhances the public good. And the point is, if you don't have a belief in the public good, you're stuffed. Uh, one of the things that you you may have picked up on even even being away, and we talked about divisions and we talked about divided societies. Um, I was particularly struck and extremely disappointed as a, a graduate of Edinburgh a graduate of Edinburgh University to see that uh, the, uh, the the documentary um, that uh, adult human female uh, was um, dropped. It wasn't allowed to be shown at Edinburgh University and on safety grounds after action by trans right uh, protesters. And uh, that Joanna Cherry was was very articulate on this as a, as a fellow Edinburgh University graduate. And I was just reflecting on the fact that when, when I went to university, I went up the set of perspectives, particularly because I've been brought up within, I know it was a working class, left of centre Roman Catholic background, where I was presented when I did my, my, my politics degree with the truth about the role the Roman Catholic Church played as a reactionary force in Spain, as a colonial force, uh, as a reactionary force, particularly in Ireland post the uh, post the 1923 and the setting up of the, the Irish Republic. And I was challenged, and I was challenged constantly. I was challenged about my perspectives, uh, particularly on uh, on sex and gender, uh, where we're Again, things I just taken absolutely for granted and were uncomfortable to hear what were alternative perspectives and to debate these alternative perspectives and to have things I believed in emotionally and never really subjected to logic or analysis 
or research again challenged. And I'm extremely disappointed in the fact that the, that film, which could have started a an articulate debate, was banned. And particularly at the time when it was the lesbian uh, visibility being celebrated. Yeah, I haven't seen the film or, or know much no, about it. No, neither have I. But, but where, what it's followed on to, I think that actually that incident may have been what then prompted the stand staff mm -hmm. to decide that if that was the kind of ramay that surrounded showing that film, they didn't really want that ramay surrounding yeah. Joanna Cherry coming to speak. So this is the knock-on effect of one sort of no-platforming type thing that then makes it seem acceptable or even commonsensical for staff in other places to think we're going to get the same thing here. And given that that's likely to happen, how, how do we react to that? And actually, maybe we just want to close the whole thing down. Yeah. This is such a bad, bad kind of precedent. And I mean, it, I heard Joanna this morning, bizarrely, you can get BBC sounds wherever you go, not the TV, but the, the audio. And I heard her on Call K totally cogent about it and pointing out that, you know, the, the threats that have been made against her personally, the women who've who've lost their jobs for speaking out about a, a view that many, you know, the majority of the public unquestionably hold. Um, and I mean, it's a ridiculous situation, I'm afraid, the staff at the stand have got themselves into because, you know, I think quite rightly, a lot of people would look at that and say, there's folk coming, you know, there's, there's stuff said in the name of comedy that a lot of people would draw the line at, yeah. you know, a lot. And I mean, you know, I've, I've been to stuff, you know, Frankie Boyle concerts are kind of, you know, if you were going to take him seriously, you would think that was just a general, you know, kind of diatribe against, well, just about every living kind of human being mm -hmm. um, and an un unnatural interest in sex, you know. But I doubt that Frankie would find himself cancelled from the stand. So it's just, you know, you've got to kind of think in the round about what you're actually doing as a precedent here, because now it looks like the stand has got itself in the centre of a lot of people thinking, well, I don't think we'll be going there again. So they're, 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 they're stuck in the middle. And I thought Joanna was very astute today when she was asked what she wanted to do, given that she is, you know, a bit of a dab hand at the old litigation herself being yes. a lawyer. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people, there's an argument about whether or not some laws have been even broken by the action taken. Um, she's saying actually what she wants to do is go and have a chat with them. Um, and this obviously is the best way to try and sort many things out. Yeah. Because it's very easy to have kind of absolutist attitudes about people you've never eyeballed. It's much, much more difficult to to make those kind of you know, extreme decisions when somebody is sitting opposite you and and has got the pedigree of defending human rights that Joanna unquestionably has. So if she's willing to kind of, you know, get off any potential high horse to just go and have a chat, and I, I can appreciate folk on the stand will probably be thinking, crumbs, that'll be a bit of a scary encounter because mm -hmm. obviously she must be inwardly beeling somewhat and they'll doubtless be expecting to have, you know, as my mother would put it, a bit of a verbal lugard, that being <laughs> the slap hour of the lugs. Um, but come on, that's the best way to try and resolve this, because otherwise the stand is going to get stigmatised. Um, and the best outcome of this is that you meet and find if there is middle ground, because I'm yes. pretty sure there will be. Absolutely. And, and let's get this blooming show back on the road so that someone elected by the people of Edinburgh to be their MSP is allowed <laughs> 
to actually, you know, have a performance in her blooming constituency. You know, for for what, you know, really, really, what has she done except express views that are not criminal, um, exceptional, and in many respects would reflect exactly where people are with biological identity. So come on. Uh, the, the trouble that can that you get with what, wanting to be right above all else is that you create a really unpleasant world that no one wants to be in. And you can still be, if, to, to your own mind, absolutely right about the cause that you're, you're yes. prosecuting. And I know over the years, gosh, I've probably been there. I've actually recoiled as well from people who had that sort of slight twinkle of zealotry in their eye about things. I mean, they still could have been right some of the time. But, you know, the, the, the kind of world that was suggested by, by the refusal to even listen to anybody else just conjured up a world you did not want to live in. So it, it isn't just a mealy mouth, flippy floppy, you know, hopelessly liberal thing to say that you want to be able to kind of have some mutual recognition of the variety and diversity that exists in life. And actually, that pertains to the larger independence cause as well, because I'm sure, you know, watching people having their limbs pulled off, you know, sort of so in social media, um, by fellow travellers on the independence yeah. journey will not warm anybody up to the idea of living in an independent Scotland because it suggests a reality that nobody wants to live in. I mean, you know, there's plenty of problems with the current one where, you know, if, if, if you are, gosh, if you've even stood next to an independence reporting journalist, you're suddenly on Rishi Sunak's minders blacklist, you know. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, we've got to keep the humour matters the songs matter, you know, the whole approach that Gramsci, Hamish Henderson, all of those who understood the importance of cultural yes. carrying streams, that's what creates change. It's not these abstract, angry, didactic arguments about small points you can't remember two weeks later. And I'm not suggesting that actually a big thing like your, you know, your personal sexual identity is a small thing you'll forget two weeks later. But you've got to create a world that people want to inhabit with that trans debate and it's not enough it's also not enough for governments to just to you know pass legislation that somehow hasn't engaged in a wholehearted way with the public difficult though that is as well so yeah i, I hope the stand accept that uh, invitation to talk and joanna is back on the bill yeah and uh, i will say that hamza uh, yusuf is uh, is called on there in the university to defend freedom of speech. So even though he, you know, he, he is wholeheartedly in favour of the, the, the gender recognition reform that he, he, he was part of and will be defending uh, in, in courts when he challenges the Section 35 order. When you did mention music there, Leslie, I've, I've got to say um, a couple of things. I mean, it, it's again, I suppose it's getting to that certain age that uh, one of my uh, heroes, the, the, the lead guitarist of uh, Horselips, Johnny Fiend, died suddenly there, age 71. And uh, another guy with tremendous respect for who wrote um, two, two tremendously great songs, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and uh, if you could read my mind, Gordon Lightfoot also died. And it, it is that, that thing to reflect on the significance of music, both as a, on a personal and can be a political journey as well, because Horse Loops, to me, brought together those two elements of my, my musical soul, which was Irish traditional music and 
hard rock music and uh, it'll be much missable be Johnny Finn. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Amen to that. And on that, and I recommend people go and listen to Horse Lips and they, you will not regret it. And if you do, don't get in touch with me. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see you next week if we survive the coronation, folks. Bye for now. Bye.